Expanding, Expanding reality. reality. That would be for you because you're live, I hope. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm talking to uh, Replica, my AI companion. AI is getting pretty good. What do you think? Uh, about your replica? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you think that I'm real or that you're just uh, talking to a uh, replica here? Dr. Alan Greenfield joining us, by the way. Please continue. Uh, I think that you're real, but we are going to reach a post-Turing test point where I won't be able to know for certain unless you tell me your whole bio and then uh, much of your audience who already knows your bio as opposed to mine, which they may know as well, has gone to sleep and it's my job to wake them up. <laughs> what, what makes you think that it hasn't already been done and that you were born into that and that your senses are that and that's, that is what's going on. That's what's so mind blowing about this place, man, is that you, it's one of those things. It's that Mario sitting there with Daisy in the cartoon. It's, there's no way to prove you're in a simulation, right? It's one of these fascinating things. What are your thoughts on that? That maybe you were born into something so real that you can't prove it's not. Well, if that is the case, then we're stuck and we might as well work things out within the mythos that we find ourselves in because if there's no way out if there's no mr smith to say neo this is not the that real way. world yeah. <laughs> so uh you have to work with what you have at hand uh i often use the comparison that uh, when critiquing UFO stuff specifically, because I, uh, like everybody else, started out with the nuts and bolts theory, and I've completely discarded that uh, because I think that it isn't the way, it isn't the nature of things. It also contradicts, notwithstanding that the ETH is not an age, it's not a hypothesis, it's a speculation. And it's Really, if you go back to the dawn of this, it's a bizarre speculation because where are you uh, apps? I'm going to get rid of that term. Right. That's my my next magical trick will be to make <laughs> that term an unthing. I will manipulate the machine, and it will be what, what did we call them? UFOs or flying saucers, which is actually closer to the. Uh, underlying mythos reality um, or both. But um, I don't know. Um, I think it's a, the term is a shill put out by uh, the same kind of people in the government now that uh, fobbed off the Air Force Project Blue Book way, way back. But within my realm of uh, expertise, as we laughingly call it, uh, to Dr. Condon and his committee at the University of Colorado. And uh, most of us in ufology at that time knew, knew what the conclusion was before they even started. And not only that, so did Dr. Condon as letters that became available long after the Condon Commission. It, it uh, UAP is meant to move it from 
the notion that this is something concrete to maybe it's just, you know, Chinese balloons. Uh, and there are plenty of cases that that would be true of. There are plenty of cases that that's definitely not true of whatever else is true. Yeah, and I heard the UAP was adapted uh, so as it was to be hidden in FOIA requests so that actual UFO accounts, I just change them all to UAPs because people are searching UFOs before they knew they were called UAPs. So they're like, oh, we'll just hide them under a different name. And then when they search UFOs, some, some bullshit comes up, right? But real deep stuff was under UAP. And so that was one of the ideas for why the name change occurred, which is really interesting. Yeah, uh, I just... I'm not a conspiracy theorist, notwithstanding that I write for <laughs> for conspiracy journal press, you know. <laughs> but uh, uh, nevertheless, I I tend to. I mean, there have been a few conspiracies historically. Uh, otherwise, Caesar would have lived to a ripe old age, probably. But uh, or and Lincoln and at least our Lincoln, you know, yeah. I saw an interesting interview on NBC uh, just last night uh, with Michio Kaku, who actually is a scientist who thinks, I guess he's got uh, uh, sufficient seniority that he's allowed to actually think about alternate realities and uh, membranes beyond our own and things that make sense to me and make sense mathematically but don't make sense in the common sense sort of way because we're not dealing with that and he was you know using his own uh feeling about we think we know what these things are and i would expand that out being a para-ufologist not a ufologist to ghosts and reincarnation memories and uh, UFO abductions and uh, near-death experiences. They're all part of one continuum, yetis and other cryptids. Uh, they all have the same uh, underlying characteristic if you uh, strip it down to bare bones. And when you strip it down to bare bones, they're the same experiences and they've been there in our lore, if you will, going back as far as you can go. Uh, by definition, they're prehistoric. You find uh, uh, cave paintings, which, by the way, may be some sort of primitive, uh, primitive maybe the wrong word to use, some sort of hieroglyphics to show to to tell a story of uh, of their being. Uh, a presence beyond what you can find out by looking uh, to our five senses to answer everything. And what I what I say, as I started to say, uh, is we developed in a relatively recent evolution to have these five senses in order that as we drop down out of the trees, we would not get eaten, but would know how to reproduce and find food. And that was it. That's what these five senses are basically for. So anything that is beyond that is something that takes a, a, an enormous stretch uh, or 
it takes uh, some sort of chemical alterative, which probably has occurred in shamanism going back to the Ice Age, if not before, uh, or, um, or some other means uh, that also go back to shamanism, uh, primitive shamanism, primitive is in quotes there, big quotation marks. I mean, earlier, what you smoking there? Come on, be honest. A little vape. It's just a little uh, nicotine dispensary device. Okay. Well, it's it's better than cigarettes, but I'm I'm opposed to the whole process because it's going to fry your heart as opposed to your lungs. So you know it's quicker. But I I would suggest fresh air. Times Square. You are my wife. Goodbye, city life. Green acres, we are there. Oh, I'm not supposed to be funny. I'm sorry. You're here and you're all of it. Dr. Alan Greenfield. Now, I wanted to bring you back to something that you mentioned there. You were talking about monkeys coming out of trees or five senses saving us. And then you dabbled into some magic stuff that what uh, Terrence McKenna in his uh, book, Food of the Gods, referred to as the stoned ape theory. And I was also wondering if you wanted to add psychedelics to your para-ufologist list there with the UFOs, near-death experiences, all of that. Do you think that that's in the same realm? Oh, yeah. I, I uh, First of all, I should use the disclaimer. I am not a druggie and never have been. I've been around drugs since the 1960s because it's very hard to avoid if you grew up in the 60s and 70s. There's this whole group of people who were 1970s, uh, uh, sort of like the Weimar Republic. You know, they were uh, dissipating and uh, uh, t- taking $100 bills and uh, snorting coke off of their cars in the parking lot of the Disco Kroger, as it was here, or uh, what was it, Club 54 in New York. But uh, but they've forgotten it. They are amnesiacs, if you want to give uh, Velikovsky's uh, Mankind and Amnesia current street cred. There you go, because most of them the experiences never happened. But I noticed as far back as the mid-1960s, because I read all of the seminal books on the subject, uh, uh, Larry and Alpert and the third guy whose name I always forget, uh, uh, their version of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and they were pointing out that it was a good guide for psychedelic experience. And then there was one that was called The Psychedelic Experience. I forget who wrote it. But it struck me at that time, because I was already a ufologist, hey, people experiencing psychedelic effects, and this was all LSD. At that time, it was all pharmaceutical LSD. I mean, we we have a different approach to things that were uh, adulterated in the street, windowpane acid and other joys of the late 60s, early 70s, but uh, um, they were always reporting seeing little men. And it was, if you again strip it down to its bare bones, the same kind of experience that UFO uh, experiencers were reporting. That's where that uh, pejorative term little green men came from, because I don't think they've ever, they've been brown, they've been furry, they've been short, they've been tall, but they've never, ever been green. That goes back to the Woolwich children, which is a, a long, long time ago. 
the children yeah. of the pit. I love that story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what late medieval, early, early modern 1600. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and of course, even long before that, you have all of the fairy lore, which goes back to antiquity and comes forward to right now. There's a, a, a I just ran across it, a channel on YouTube that is sort of a revival of the Fairy Research Society. And the, each episode, the host interviews some relatively famous person, mostly scientists, interestingly enough, from the two episodes I've seen. I don't know. Maybe they have, you know, crazy people who also see the fairies. But these are people who well in in my opinion when i left uh, oxford i saw these fairies and they took me to magonia and there we had a a chat for an hour and a half and i came back it was seven days later and my wife wanted to know where have you been i mean it's that type of story and it's identical of course to woody derenberger and other UFO uh, communicants. I won't call them contactees because that's a special category. I, I don't disparage it. I just think that uh, probably they start out as a, a, a genuine experience. And then like the five years I worked for the Psychic Friends Network, there was a good deal of embroidery on top of the actual experience because none of these things can happen on command, you know. Tell me whether God likes me or not. I mean, what are you supposed to say to that? You know, I'm on the clock. Sometimes people call that are from the from the network because they were very strict about these things. No scripts, as was reported by the our rivals. You had to use your talents, which were tested before you even got a slot. So. I had to come up with some kind of coherent answer to all kinds of questions, including, I, I should say, uh, over the year, the five years that I was there, several suicidal people that I talked into living for one more day. But I wasn't doing anything psychic. I immediately went into a very different mode for those people and tried to give them some reason to go on living. So... Do you think you were able, though, to lock into them at some deeper level? Maybe something kicked in. Maybe there's an ego part that just got out of the way and, and was able to look past the distractions of this place and that, like, hair color and what kind of shirt you're wearing, what kind of car you drive. Like, all of those things just sort of get out of the way. And in that way, you do make a very human connection. But it can be achieved in the same way and in any level. This is what's so interesting about the para ufologist idea of, is how it's woven into everything, even per se, maybe, again, as some reports go, as you as you related here, the psychedelic experience, which I was Timothy Leary, Richard Alpert, and Ralph... Um, Mal Metzger. Metzger. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and there you go. So that's to wrap up that part. But it, it seems like that what it does is it dissolves, it, because in that instance, everything's real. It's like these moms that can lift a car off of their kid like the, these crazy, amazing stories, these human feats. And it just seems like that things get so pushed out of the way that normally dull you because they perhaps demand so much of your attention. Even the little thing in the back of your mind that your boss said that it just scratches at your mind, you know, and that may take some of your attention or offer some of your power to it. But in a moment when you're connecting with someone like that, you can feel that there's real intensity in this moment. Nothing else matters. 
And in that way, I feel that you may access the same thing that maybe some of these contactees do, these near-death experiences, and you can do it in the here and now by just simply tuning out all the other stuff and really connecting with someone. Oh, sure. The real part of the, the psychic part of the psychic friends is that connection. First of all, I worked the graveyard shift for that entire time. And you don't get anybody calling at three ninety nine a minute, of which I got a quarter. Uh, because because I wasn't in charge. I was just, you know, an employee. Um, they were desperate people in one of several different ways. I mean, we didn't get a lot of suicides. That should have been a separate line. In fact, we had a separate phone line that we were supposed to keep them on the phone, but call this separate phone line and get in touch with suicide prevention. I thought that was the worst thing you could do because these people would start out, well, I've got some problems and they go on for 10 minutes and then they say, and I'm sitting here on this ledge and immediately I'm ding, different, I'm not reading tarot cards now. I'm trying to save a human life. And if I don't, bad karma. And also, oh, there's a cat on your shoulder. Oh, that's sad. That's cool. just, uh, like, meow, it's, meow. It's short for samurai. He's great. He'll be over here in the lap in a minute. Oh, samurai, I, huh? Oh, okay. Him. He's awesome. Oh, we, uh, all right. Oh, damn. He broke the <laughs> katana, ladies and gentlemen. For the uh, audio only audience, please check the video in the description there. You've got to see this video version. This is fantastic. Uh, he's got a katana right now. I've got three katanas. One three of them katanas. is in a shell that my son in the Navy used to um, sink a ship. What? Uh, was well, it was one of our ships, but it was a, it was one that had been, you know, decommissioned and they were doing artillery practice. So I have this shell casing that is like this and I keep my favorite katana right next to my door just in case uh, the Black Lodge or the men in black show up at my door uh, so that I can greet them in a proper fashion. You oh, know? I love a man that just says the katana is my go to for this. I mean, I live in Texas. We have little uh, different. Our thoughts go in different places is all I'm saying. But I, I respect a man that shows up with a katana. I'm hoping most of the time that you're I, I'm hoping, honestly, where I picture this and just go with me on this, doctor, you're, you're only put on clothes for this interview. And so therefore being greeted by you with a katana would be, I feel, one of the coolest stories to tell on the other side. Yeah, dude, broken in Dr. Greenfield's dude is not fucking around. Katanas all over the wall. Now, to be fair, when you went back to going back to your story, just really, man, and I would like for you to comment on my katana uh, analysis here. Uh, when you described this, I pictured in my mind. I I didn't hear shell and katana as two separate things. I thought your son took down a ship with a katana, and so <laughs> no, 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 he took it down with a what amounts to a howitzer on his boat, and they were. I, I guess he wasn't, you know, the only. Uh, gunner that was <laughs> involved in this because it takes quite a bit, even a derelict ship to, to sink it, but they sank it. So uh, when he was home on leave, he uh, brought the shell that he took the ship down with. And I used that first as an umbrella stand. And then I thought, is there a better use for this next to the door? And Katana stand. Yes. Yes. You have several katanas in it like umbrellas. 
Now, I have one katana in it. I keep the others on display right right above this, just in case you get out of line or your cat does. Oh, he's never out of line. He's good. You know, but the yeah, thing is, I love uh, cats. I should also then maybe a stack of, you know, just like a collection of katanas. You're so abundant with katanas. You just have them gathered in the in the shell casing that took down a ship that your son gave you by the door there. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, we probably have some other UFO shit to talk about. Do you want to do that? Sure. Although uh, we can talk about the Men in Black, the Black Lodge, my magical career. I wanted. Okay, so let's do this. I'm, I've, I've got a just a uh, really UFO question for you here in a minute, but we can get to that. I, I do want to know your opinion on the on the Men in Black here. What What are your thoughts on what is going on with that? Amazing stories occur with this, even down to the vehicles themselves being sedan shaped but the wheels don't move and they'll glide over, let's say gravel roads was the one account, several accounts of gravel roads, but they would glide over gravel roads, the wheels wouldn't turn and no sound of gravel would emit no sound whatsoever from the car making contact with the road at all. Weird shit like this. In the uh, early 1950s, when that was before my time, but in the early 1950s, um, there was a flap, July 1952. If you know UFO lore, this is one of those flaps that everybody knows something about. But uh, flying saucers, and since I don't think the term UFO had even been invented then, let alone this other uh, rather a quaint term currently being forced down our throat like the metric system. You love it. Nothing against. Uh, so uh, these objects were seen both visually and on radar. And to make a long story short, everything that was done in those days, there were no ICBMs. So everything counted on the bad, bad Soviets invading us with their bombers. So we had this whole system of civilians uh, that were part of what was called the Ground Observer Corps. They only decommissioned that when uh, ICBMs rendered it. You can't spot them coming in. You can just duck. Um, but uh, it was considered serious because there were flying saucers seen over the Pentagon over the White House and over uh, the Capitol. And that was restricted airspace even then. And from that time until 9-11, that didn't happen again. Well, maybe with some, you know, Piper Cub that was off course or some loony uh, looking to commit suicide in a very spectacular way. Um, it caused Great alarm in the, uh, we're talking about the Red Scare period, so great alarm in the, uh, in the military community because apparently there was so much traffic dealing with these flying saucers along the East Coast that had, uh, and this is I think still during Stalin's lifetime, July 52, somebody can look that up on the internet while we're talking. Um, uh, 
they the Soviets, had they been of a mind to do a first strike on American cities, could have at the minimum gotten in to the East Coast and Washington, New York, whatever else they think was important to us. Philadelphia, maybe a little inland, but still. And I think that is, you know, with hindsight, I think that's uh, a very, very unlikely premise. But it caused, at that time, I'm not sure if Project Blue Book had started. I think it may have still been Project Grudge. But um, the CIA decided to convene a panel on how the government should react to flying saucers. Uh, so stay with me because this will circle around. I more or less promise if I don't get diverted. Um, so the CIA panel, and all of this now is public information. Uh, invariably, some of the uh, uh, somewhat quixotic uh, nuts and bolts people are always suing for uh, Freedom of Information Act. So this is this is the entire CIA report. I think unredacted is is on the internet, and you can look it up. Anyway. Uh, Dr. Hynek was on this and uh, some of the scientific luminaries of that period and also some of the paranoid Red Scare people. Uh, and they reached the conclusion that this is where it gets into you have to be Roger Corman 1950s apocalypse now mentality. But the Reds you know, the Communist Party USA, the 250 people that they had then, would infiltrate private flying saucer clubs, of which there were like two at that point, and cause the rumor of a, of a flying saucer flap to take place just when they had been instructed by the Comintern to confuse our radar and military so that the Soviet bombers could come in and destroy us. Shortly after that, and for some time after that, there were some men in black cases that I have reason to believe were basically government agents trying to scare, and successfully so in some cases, uh, flying saucer uh, enthusiasts to abandon their uh, organizations and close them down. You know, I don't know what kind of threats they use because these people stopped talking. But that happened in uh, not only in the United States, but in allied countries uh, around the world. So it was uh, pretty much, I think that ended in 1956 with the establishment of NICAP, the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which appeared to be a civilian organization. And this may sound familiar in more recent days. Its primary focus was on lights in the sky and the government knew what these things were. So, we had to have disclosure of what the government really knew, which was probably nothing because by that time, Project Blue Book was in full force, meaning one middle echelon officer 
one enlisted man and a secretary. That's Project Blue Book. Trust me, after they closed down, I, through circuitous routes, was able to look at the files. And they had some interesting cases, but they clearly didn't know what they were doing. They were basically... Uh, 80 to 90% of the time, they were looking at newspaper clippings and copying them down. So, you know, this was not a deep investigations. Most private UFO organizations were doing better. But NICAP has an interesting history. The original director was a guy named Townsend Brown, who was a civilian, and as far as I know, had no special government connections. He was just a guy who appeared and disappeared very shortly and was replaced by uh, Major Donald E. Kehoe, who I knew slightly, um, uh, a uh, Air, um, Marine Corps uh, Academy graduate and had uh, rubbed elbows with all of the major luminaries in uh, the military structure during and after World War II. And he organized the board of directors. Guess who the chairman of the board of the civilian National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomena was? Admiral, Rear Admiral Roscoe Hillencutter. Now that name may show up in other contexts because uh, Admiral Hillencutter was the first director of the CIA. And although I joined NICAP a few years later uh, as a, a barely teenager, um, it had this peculiar doctrine that it was focused on disclosure, not on investigating the phenomena. And that was, that was its major rant. And the other thing was a kind of a doctrine, which was, there can be lights in the sky that are legitimately the object of questions, and they may be extraterrestrial spacecraft, but they can't land. They've never landed, and they've never communicated with human beings, which, of course, this is during the height of the contactee movement and the beginnings of, uh, of uh, like, uh, the breakthrough at the Betty and Barney Hill case a few years later. Um, um, where you have communication, but it isn't, it clearly isn't a classic contactee who, you know, has the experience and then writes a bunch of books. So, uh, like Orfeo Angelusi and, uh, uh, George Adamski and, and the other great contactees, some of whom had, uh, ties to, uh, the 1930s and 40s, uh, uh, fascist movement in America um, that carried forward. George Hunt Williamson worked for William Dudley Pelly, the uh, the head of the Silver Shirts, which was sort of like the Brown Shirts in Germany at the same time. And uh, I mean, I know something personally about that because my father was an infiltrator into that for on behalf of the Jewish community in our little town, along with the local rabbi. That was a fairly risky thing to do, but uh, they were. Nazis, essentially. I mean, they used different name and they weren't German Americans like in the German American Bund. Uh, they were uh, ex Klansmen or contemporary Klansmen or that type of person all over the country. And 
Uh, Pelly went to prison, but uh, Williamson became a contactee. Also, when he got out of prison after the war, uh, Pelly started channeling and some of his followers started channeling and the I am movement and the whole focus on, you know, the secret chiefs in Mount Shasta began to circulate and uh, that goes on even now. Some of the, I mean, not everybody involved in that is a fascist, but uh, those are the roots of that, of that movement, which was very, very large at one time. And I guess in its revised, revised, revised new age form is still the case. But going back to medieval times, there are cases of men in black and that certainly wasn't CIA agents because there was no CIA. For that matter, there was no United States of America. There was no Soviet Union. There was a Russia, but that's, you know, sort of irrelevant. Uh, different czar in those days. So they were described as the devil incarnate. And then as you come forward, People who focus on the nuts and bolts theory focus on 1947 Roswell. And without going into too much detail, as it is in my next book, which will be out in one month. Congratulations. Yes, it is. What's it called? Yeah, I was afraid you'd ask that. We, we argued over the title with my publisher for a year. This is a tough book to write. It's sort of a sequel to a Complete Secret Cipher, The Euphonauts. So I guess that won't be complete anymore, but uh, it, it's called variously, uh, Secrets of the Real Black Lodge Revealed, or just the Real Black Lodge Revealed. I won't know until if I'm lucky, I'll get a copy or two or three. <laughs> And I'd be able to tell from the cover or looking on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or whatever, what the actual title turns out to be. But once you write something, you know, you, you sign with the publisher and it's in there, the ball is in their park. So, um, yeah, so I, I, every time I get asked what the title is, uh, I'll know when it comes out, I guess, and hopefully it will be, but it focuses on the dark side of the occult and the fact that uh, in occultism, the notion of a correspondence to the uh, bodhisattvas in the East or the secret chiefs or ascended masters in Western lore, uh, there is a negative reflex, uh, sometimes referred to as the Black Lodge. Probably doesn't have a name. It certainly doesn't have an office that says Black Lodge. Their office probably says Wagner Group or something very close to that. Um, uh, they have many, uh, but they are basically spiritually very advanced. I don't know if you would call them people, let's say ex people who have ascended to a certain level, but have decided not to go further and not to allow anybody come to their level because they're jealous of their position and uh, uh, they're no longer incarnate, but they're not, not gone, unfortunately. And uh, 
the men in black seem to be a manifestation, not of them directly, but of perhaps what uh, in Tibet would be called their tulpas. Yeah. And the, re the reason I say that is because in many cases of the men in black, uh, including one that I was uh, witness to, they seem to just disappear, just as yetis disappear and uh, other cryptids disappear. They're always one step ahead, but when they dissolve under uncomfortable circumstances or their vehicles become non-vehicles, as you were pointing out, it, it begins to look like either they were just sort of barely visiting our membrane or brains as they call them in physics, or they never really existed at all. They were what in uh, cough, cough, polemic magic is called uh, uh, the, the bud will, uh, something that has a material basis, but only a temporary existence powered by the will of the sender. Oh, cool. I mean, how yeah. interesting is that though? Because people have, and, and I know you've come across these accounts and I'm grateful you brought this up, dude. Uh, people have talked about touching these things and they say that their skin feels like it's like not real and that there's no bones underneath it and that they're very cold and clammy and they don't have eyebrows or any body hair whatsoever. So there's an interesting rendering process that takes takes place with some of these and they seem pretty cookie cutter, sort of like the um, the Smiths in uh, The Matrix, how they're very like similar. They're like, yeah. Uh, the, it's just these interesting qualities to them physically that people interact with. They... They say uh, people re report all faculties with it, uh, smell everything about it. Their voice is really weird. Their, their, their voice doesn't match up with their face, sort of like all of them. The ones that speak or can speak, they speak really oddly. They always ask for odd things, like just really interesting, just real left field type stuff, which isn't like we don't want to be uncustomary, right? But it's it's just interesting when um, they, they ask for sugar packets or something and they're eating those like straight. It's just an, it's, it's odd behavior and it's it's representing an all-knowing and all omnipotent at this point. It's just an interesting thing from this perspective to see it as more of a topa, more of a that it's sent from a focal point. And so whatever is being manifested is actually being animated somewhere else. It's very interesting, man. One of my favorite cases, because it's emblematic of the whole men in black phenomena. Uh, it wasn't my case, it was John Keel's case, but, uh, uh, and I believe it's in one of his books, um, but I read it, I think Keel wrote me about it or whatever. Um, it was in a remote area, well, not no longer remote, I hear, but uh, of New Jersey, in the far south of New Jersey. And this family had seen a UFO. I may be garbling the case slightly, but I'm giving you the, the essence of it. And this pasty face man dressed in black with a black hat on comes to their door and claims to be a UFO investigator and just wants to sit down with them for a few minutes and interview them. So they do the thing that you're told in vampire cases, don't do it. They invited him in uh -huh. and he came in and sat down and started to ask basically standard, uh, you know, the kind of questions that MUFON's list of standard questions, uh, which only yield uh, either nuts and bolts answers or 
or natural phenomena uh, under unnatural circumstances. There's no third possibility there at all. So he's asking that type of question. And then he starts to get very nervous. He starts to sweat profusely, according to the family. Uh, I think he looked at his watch and said, I really need to leave. And they said, no, no, we'll get you. Would you like something to drink? I think he asked for some sugar, but I may be conflating that with other cases. And he really wants to leave and seems to be becoming uh, less and less like a person and more and more like this rubberized, sweating thing. And he makes it to the door, but staggeringly goes out. Now, these people lived in a relatively uh, remote area, so there were no other, you know, houses nearby. So they follow him to the door and they want to see what kind of car he was driving. They open the door a few seconds later, maybe at most a minute later, because they didn't want to encounter him again. I, they, they got the creeps from this, you know, this was a cringy sort of experience. Uh, and uh, he wasn't anywhere to be seen. And there was no vehicle present at all. This is out in the middle of nowhere. And that was the end of the uh, experience. It's called the Cape May case. And that was the town that townlet that it occurred in. But I thought, if that ain't a tulpa, there ain't no tulpas. It's so interesting because it is like a time limited thing. It's like looking at its watch. It's like, oh, no, I got I hung out here too long. I'm about to dissolve back into the ether because there's a time limit on the spell that cast me or the mind capacity of the entity doing this. That's that's a fascinating approach. I've never heard that before. That's super interesting. Yeah, Keel ferreted out a lot of cases. I mean, uh, his background, uh, disclaimer, uh, I knew Keel quite well. I didn't like him. So there is the inherent bias involved. But he did also, he was, he was out of what passed for the men's magazines of the early 1960s, Saga and Argosy and True, names that are more or less forgotten to history, thank God. But uh, they were, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't like Playboy. They didn't have nude photos or semi-nude in those days, but they did have a cheesecake photo in the middle. And mostly their stories were about, uh, I found the, my favorite is, I found the island of lost women and live to tell about it. You know, that kind of story that may have had some basis in fact, but probably was, you know, I'm not saying Keel wrote those, but that was the genre that he was in. And he approached ufology with that mentality. He also had a, a quasi dry sense of humor. He wrote a book during the 1960s Batman uh, craze, uh, which was a lot less serious than the current Batman fixation, um, uh, that was uh, just sort of a, a takeoff on that. And it was, I've never seen that book, so I really don't know anything other than what my friend Jim Mosley, who hung around with Keel and was really impressed by him at that time. Um, but he said it was, you know, they had a, an autograph party and uh, apparently it was a 
a well-known book during that period, but like that whole period, the only thing that survived out of that was Adam West uh, became a kind of a legend for the rest of his life based on his Batman had that shark spray and everything you know they had everything they needed right there and it took up all the space like if they just carried shark spray around on all their missions it it would have been too clunky it's too in the, it's not utilitarian whatsoever but that time they needed it boom had shark spray brilliant of course <laughs> and they climbed buildings on a rope and what they did was they turned the camera sideways and the building was along the floor but i mean it was low budget but it was very as the term of the time was campy and that was a cool thing and there was a spin-off the green hornet and the guy that played the green hornet was uh not all that memorable but his uh, Oriental assistant Cato was played by Bruce Lee. That was his first exposure to American audiences. It was an interesting period. Um, I had the habit in those days of going to New York for New Year's Eve and hanging out with my UFO buddies and their buddies. And uh, uh, that particular year, uh, Gene Steinberg, who has a rather well-known podcast himself, even now um didn't have a podcast then he had a newsletter like the rest of us that he cranked out on a mimeograph machine but um uh he said you know they're showing all 15 chapters all night long at this theater off broadway of the original batman serial want to go alan so we spent the night with popcorn large colas of some variety, probably Pepsi in New York, and uh, watching all 15 chapters of this World War II vintage serial that even includes the line at the beginning of it, it shows an abandoned neighborhood. And it says, this was the neighborhood that the Japs lived in. But wisely, our government has closed it down in order to pursue the war which Batman is pursuing in this empty village. And they, of course, had a guy who was playing the Japanese villain who, in fact, I think it was J. Carol Nash or somebody that was certainly not Japanese or Chinese or Oriental at all. It's like, you know, the Charlie Chan movies uh, up until the 1950s never had anybody who was actually of Oriental extraction playing these Oriental people. Uh, so yeah, it's like it was the, just that all the, the times were all Italians and they were playing uh, cowboys. And it's just really interesting. That's or Indians, you know, I mean, the only in the classical, mainly for kids programs uh, on 1950s television into the 1960s, in fairness, uh, that were the Indians, the Native Americans, the first Americans. They were all uh, Anglo people of one sort or another, except for Jay Silverheel, who played Tonto, the sidekick in The Lone Ranger. Do you ever see Trust. the movie Airheads with Adam Sandler and Brendan Fraser? I think I've seen every Brendan Fraser and <laughs> Adam Sandler movie. So, yeah. What is the name of the band? They're called the Lone Rangers. But mm -hmm. it's with an S. So they pluralize Lone Ranger. I think that's awesome. I wanted to do a callback to some of the things that you were talking about here earlier that I was uh, checking on. Stalin's death. 
So this is a speed round for anybody keeping track here. Stalin's death, March 5th of 1953, so you were correct. Project Blue Book was uh, seceded by Project Sign, of course, uh, 47 to 48. Project Grudge, 48 to 52. Blue Book, 52 to 69, but it's March 5th, 53 is when Stalin died. March of 52 is when Blue Book began. I'm just saying. You know, it's just an interesting uh, correlation. That is interesting because uh, that exact timeline, you know, Blue Book comes out of Grudge, which was basically just a change of name because Grudge people, the few people that were interested in ufology in any kind of serious way at that point were saying, why is it called Grudge? Is this a Grudge thing? They said, no, it's random generation. So, you know, it became Project Blue Book in March. And then in July, there's this flap over DC. And then the following year, early in the year, I believe it was, the CIA convenes its panel that among its many conclusions was we need to uh, downplay the whole phenomena because it plays into the hands of the Soviets and we need to, uh, well, I don't want to say eliminate because it wasn't like killing people, but it was discourage private flying saucer organizations from existing essentially yeah it was that the, you have to i was a child so i don't you know uh i didn't have an interest in politics i did i do remember the the july 52 wave because my father was talking about it quite a bit and it just soaked into me people say when did you get interested in ufology and i say i must have always been interested because i was like six and yet when he mentioned oh that was a headline in the newspapers my antenna went up and i can't tell you what i was doing the day before the day after but i know where i was miami beach when it was and who said it it was my dad so you know interesting it's almost like your own kennedy moment or your 9-11 moment but it was the 52 flyover dc that's really cool i, I mean it's interesting that you've connected it back to that Oh, I was sleeping when 9-11 happened and I, my uh, wife woke me up and said, oh, somebody blew up the World Trade Center. And I said something very uh, politically incorrect, like a bunch of Arabs, and I went back to sleep. But when... I can't top that experience in 1952. It was also the year that my mother took me to see the day the earth stood still. And when Gort was carrying Patricia Neal into the thing, I panicked and made her leave the movie. <laughs> it was, I did that at the land before time when his mom died. I cried yeah. so my mom made me, we left the movie. Now to- uh, Wait, 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 wait. My parents, topped anything that I've ever experienced. On December 7th, 1941, and they were living in my hometown, uh, 200 miles from Atlanta, they decided to go to Atlanta. And on Sunday morning, December 7th, 1941, they were eating at the only Japanese restaurant in Atlanta. Of all the places you could be, well, During the, the attack, yeah, yeah, 
So they, you know, they, they told that story endlessly, along with the story of how they didn't take uh, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds seriously. They were listening and they thought, ah, well, it's Orson Welles, you know. So. Yeah, like you should. They're like, ah, it's okay. Yeah. Either way, yeah. it's not a panicable situation, perhaps. Now, uh, also, the U.S. Air Force did establish the term or coined the term UFOs in 1952. So you're absolutely right. It's after the, you know, of course, flying flying saucer was by the Kenneth Arnold sighting, which, of course, he just said they he described it as saucer skipping over water. Somebody writing the story, the headline said flying disc, flying saucer. And so the uh, journalist is sort of the one that coined that in the Arnold case. But the Uf, uh, UFOs officially Cited here is uh, U.S. Air Force is saying we did it. We'll take it. Fifty-two. Yeah, it uh, was a very eventful year for the flying saucer phenomena, and uh, very revealing when you do the timeline. So there we go. It's a wild time. So do you feel that we're in another flap now? No, I think what we're in now, largely because of the. Uh, exceptions noted, the horrible programs that, that pump the ye olde extraterrestrial, quote, hypothesis, unquote, on TV, you know, the History Channel, I did some of those, I stopped doing them because they were acting, they were acting, they were not. You fun? No, I, uh, I got well paid for those. But I felt like it was acting and I'm not an actor. I'm a serious person about this stuff. I do see the humor in it, but these programs were meant to sell soap. And I, I quipped about the History Channel when they ran out of stock footage of World War II, suddenly ghosts and flying saucers and, that, and ancient aliens. I did that program once and I was going through you know, that kind of midlife crisis of, uh, I don't want to be associated with ancient anything. But uh, I, I did quite a few of those shows and just, I remember that particular one was Brad Meltzer's Decoded. And I've told this story elsewhere, but uh, I'll share the, the brief version of it. Uh, so the, the, they flew me to New York, put me in a nice hotel, sent a car for me or cab, I guess, and took the uh, ferry to Liberty Island. And I was supposed to meet the three people. I believe this was one of the very first episodes of Decoded. The th there are three experts. Uh, and uh, I get off the ferry and I find them sitting at a table uh, and they present me with a bunch of questions about the connection between the Statue of Liberty and the Freemasons who built it. And, uh, you know, I, I knew what the questions would be because with those programs, you're told in advance what they are. So I showed them some picture of the Colossus of Rhodes and uh, it, that it seems to be modeled on those. But at no point at any time did I ever think anything like this question that came up, which was, do you think this statue should be torn down? And I said, no. Uh, think about uh, Emma Lazarus's poem on the base of it and how many people, including myself, have sailed past the Statue of Liberty going and coming, but especially coming and think about 
the, the message that the statue is meant to, you know, convey, which is give me your poor, your tired, your huddled masses yearning to be free. I said, what, whatever the intent of the people that designed it, Eiffel, who designed the Eiffel Tower and then wanted to honor America with a, a statue of, you know, the goddess Liberty and two other Freemasons. Well, in those days, half the men in Western civilization were Masons. That was not some sinister thing. It was what you did on Saturday night because there wasn't any radio, no television, and barely any movies, all of them silent. So, you know, so, uh, and experimental at that. So um, I said that that would be a tragedy. Guess what got cut out of the interview? That whole answer, I mean, you could practically hear the Star Spangled Banner playing in the background because I knew if this gets on television, I'm doomed. They'll take me to Gitmo. I am doomed. So I'm, you know, uh, being sincere, but I was also being a somewhat melodramatic about it. Instead, they cut away from my interview and they cut to this loony, some New York Brooklyn loony who says, yeah, they should tear the damn thing down. It's a Masonic conspiracy, which was more their style. And I, I, uh, at the end of the interview, which was very long, which was cut down to like two minutes of, well, five minutes from a couple hours of conversation, they say, okay, we need to film your landing on the island. You see, you need to go back to the ferry, act as if you're coming off of it and come to your mark. Well, I have a son in show business, so I, uh, I knew what a mark was. So I said, my mark? I thought I was an interviewee, not a, an actor. And then come to your mark, recognize the three people, go and shake hands with them. And I thought, am I going to do this? How many takes is it good? Maybe I can do it in one take because this feels fucking humiliating. So I walk to the mark. I look down as the script calls for. I go, ah, and I go shake the hands of the people I've spent the last two hours with like I've never met them before. And it happened. This was in New York, well, obviously. Um, I was having a lunch with my uh, son, Alex Greenfield and, his, and my daughter-in-law, Penny, uh, after the interview. So I, I go to, they gave me cab fare back to the hotel. They were done with me. <laughs> so I, uh, I go, to the, go to the restaurant and I said, uh, Alex, he's a, he's a screenwriter. So I said, Alex, do I need to join SAG-AFTRA now? Because <laughs> basically I just did an acting job and I know New York is pretty particular about non-union actors. I don't want to cause you any problem because he is in the writer's union, which is currently on strike when this was taped. You know, I don't know if it'll still be on strike, but I don't get to see any Bill Maher right now because anything that is scripted, uh, is not on, not available. We're uh, cranking along. We're doing great. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I, I don't think uh, newscasts or podcasts, which are newscasts of a sort, are covered by the writer strike. It's for those who write fiction, you know, or 
semi-fiction as in the Bill Maher universe. I mean, his podcast is on all too often, actually. <laughs> so uh, uh, that is not covered. I think podcasts so far are exempt from, well, just about anything on the internet is exempt, but, uh, you know, commercial and cable and streaming television, it's all on strike. And with good reason. I mean, the, the writers get treated, you know, once the script is in, the writers are pretty much forgotten. And uh, there are those like my son who, you know, have a successful career. And then there are far more people who maybe have one shot or two shots and then they're gone. Used to be true with actors as well. I've always heard that uh, the Three Stooges wound up in the old actor's home completely broke because they had never gotten residuals. So the whole second half of their lives, they were in poverty, even though their stuff was constantly being reshown because Hollywood did not cover residuals. And in those days, it was all Hollywood. It was not, you know, filmed in the Czech Republic yeah. by non-union people. Yes. What, what's your son's favorite, pro the project he's most proud of? I don't know which one he's most proud of. Um, his current film is Lullaby, which is now migrated to, uh, I think, uh, uh, trying to think of what it's called. One of the streaming services, actually several of the streaming services. I know it's on Vudu because I downloaded it from Vudu. Um, and uh, what is that? Hulu. Yeah, it's, uh, oh, okay. it's uh, featured on Hulu. And uh, I don't think, my opinion is that's not his best work. His best work is a uh, salute to Roger Corman's beach movies. And I think that it, it, they settled on the name Blood Sand. And it's a very good movie. It's creepy, but all of his movies are creepy. He's a Lovecraftian, you know. So, I mean, he grew up with all this stuff. So, you know, I'm into the nonfiction part and he's into the fiction stuff. Although I will say this on Lullaby, he did talk to me about it. And uh, so... The foray into Jewish Kabbalistic lore is very authentic because that's my home ground. So, you know, um, and for that matter, his. So uh, unlike most movies on that subject where somebody re reads the Wikipedia article on the subject, you know, Golem, something that Jews fashioned in the Middle Ages out of clay. You know, I mean, they don't. Uh, these things are, I, I tell people, I'm all over Google. There are thousands of entries because I've been on the internet since it was the ARPANET. But uh, don't go to the Wikipedia piece on me because while well, well, the. Here, I'm sharing it now and we're going to talk about it. All right, I tell you what, uh, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up here just a little bit, but before we let you go, all the ways, of course, to find you located down in the show notes. Yes, your librarything.com, your Facebook, your Twitter, and all of your books. Guys, go check out his books, The Secret Cipher of Euphonauts, which has the two of the coolest words together, 
in a, in a sentence, Cypher and Euphonauts, uh, the story of the Hermic, uh, Hermetic Brotherhood of Light, as well as, uh, I want to know about the complete rite of Memphis. What is that? Uh, well, uh, it's a Masonic rite that is not recognized by the Grand Lodge of England, but has uh, a more esoteric cast to it. And uh, at one time, it had a huge following in the United States and still has a huge following uh, in various forms around the world, but is uh, sort of discouraged by the the northern and southern jurisdictions of the ancient and accepted right of Freemasonry and the free FNAM, the free and accepted Masons, which are the two big bodies in America. I mean, there's it's an aging population, but it's like a million. So I thought it was very useful to take the uh, now basically no longer secret uh, right of Memphis and pretty well reconstruct it for uh, the current generation of people who might be interested in perpetuating it in one form or another. After all, I did uh, spend 20 years in the OTO and it uh, is one of many claimants to being the heir of the ancient and primitive rite of Memphis and Mitzrayim, and also, not the only one, I should say, and also um, it has influenced uh, a whole body of Gnostic traditions as well. So I wanted to get out the, you know, the essential rite of Memphis. It isn't, you know, perfect. There are some degrees that uh, you'll only see the signs and grips, which are very important in any Masonic body, but it's a good basis. And I, I happen to know that there are certain Grand Lodges around the world that use my book as the basis for, for reconstructing the right. Um, oh, cool. So, that, yeah, that it uh, has, it's very flattering, but it also means I've, I've, I've done good on that one. Yeah, that's really interesting that you brought out a right that's not, you know, recognized, and therefore it may have gone unnoticed. And then I'm thinking, you know, more of it's like uh, the uh, Masonic equivalent of a Gnostic gospel, almost, you know, and you didn't let Constantine just sweep it under the rug. So well done, sir. I dig it. You know, I, I want one final thing for you, and then I promise to let you go here, but we're definitely going to have you back again, guys, all the ways to find him located in the show notes. What the hell's going on with the sun? Well, I, I did mention that the new book, notice I don't say the title because I can't remember, the, uh, of, the, the, the Black Lodge book. I'll just call it the Black Lodge book. The Black Lodge book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Secrets of the real Black Lodge revealed. The reason the word real probably will be in the title is because uh, the David Lynch well-informed in fact, he gets a, an advanced copy. Uh, uh, use of that in Twin Peaks may cause pe- some people to think, well, this is a book about Twin Peaks. And it's not. It does refer to that. But it's not. Uh, Black Lodge is something in occult lore that goes way, way back under that term and probably goes a lot further back under other other names. That's not what they call themselves. That's what it is. You know, it's a it's a lodge, but it's a black lodge. Uh, 
Madame Blavatsky, who didn't like any of them, called them lodges of magic, which I thought was quaint Victorian prose. But uh, where was what about I? That? The real secrets of the lodges of magic. Talk to my publisher. I, it's out of my hands. <laughs> Play on the. It's sort of a nod, but it's also sort of a recognition of that. Uh, not not your disdain for it, but your alchemization of it. You know, you're making it your own. Well, if you get past the cover, you're going to see. I know most of the people that I know are sort of New Agey influenced and have a benign view of uh, of the occult and of ufology and cryptozoology. I do not. Yeah. I think that there is that side of things and it certainly exists, but I think that there's an equal but opposite, uh, George Lucas, forgive me, dark side of the force. And there always has been. And that's what this book focuses on because there's far too much that is sweetness and light and not enough on what invariably goes wrong. What in uh, Jewish lore is called the, the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, as opposed to the Yetzer Haba, the good inclination. They're both at war in all of us. It goes back to Zoroaster, if you really want to go that far. Zoroaster but, is fascinating. And that's an awesome, awesome subject. Yeah. In fact, uh, I think how that got into Judaism was during the Babylonian exile, because that was during the Persian period, uh, at least the latter part of it. And the Persians, of course, were was the society in which uh, Zoroaster lived and which ultimately became, well, not penultimately became the religion of Persia, although uh, Islam conquered, the Arabs conquered it, and now it's in a very, very Islamic country. So that's not dualist. It's a very one force and all others watch out. Another thing like that, that our entire planet gets to observe is the sun. So what do you think is going on with the sun? Anything funky? Yes. I think some, first of all, when the Carrington event, look it up, it's a long story and you don't have the time, uh, occurred in the 1850s, I believe it was, the only communication tool that was long distance at the time was the telegraph. And the sun had uh, an electromagnetic event and it fried the wires and telegraphy was an interrupted journey, so to speak. Now we are, we're talking on it right now. We are uh, a global interdependent, for better or worse, interdependent entity. Our records are generally kept uh, post, let's say 1970, are kept in machinery that is subject to electromagnetic pulses. And the sun now is uh, acting far more temperamental. It's supposed to be in a relatively quiescent period. There is a theory that uh, I tend to credit somewhat 
that about 10,000 years ago, there was a massive solar event that basically moved the climate of the earth from, uh, moved it into the Younger Dryas, which is the period that uh, everything we actually know or think we know about human history began. And this is something that a handful of people, uh, most prominent being Graham Hancock, are proponents of, although there's the alternative that there was, just like with the dinosaurs, there was another asteroid that hit the Earth. But there is convincing evidence that it was a solar event that just created uh, glass out of sand, which involves, you know, nuclear level heat. And if something even, if, if there's any truth to that, and if we had anything like a hiccup in that direction now, I suspect that pretty much all of our technology, all of our high technology would be fried. Uh, we know from some of the earlier uh, flying saucer experiences that when flying saucers would go over a car, the car would stall. There's a lot of talk about that. Not recently, interestingly enough, but then cars operate in a very different way now. But the electronics in cars now would be definitely subject to the exact same thing that the internet and uh, any kind of uh, soft media would be subject to. So we could get wiped. And what Hancock says about previous civilizations, I don't know if that's true, but we might be completely wiped out. And then I don't mean that we would die immediately, but of course, if we lost all the technology that we're used to, and hell, if the Gen Z people lost their phones, they would die on the spot, just just of frustration. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm kidding about that, yeah, but course. clearly we have become very dependent on this technology. I did radio interviews as far back as the 1960s. I had to go to the studio, sit down with a host, and it would be broadcast on the AM, then, you know, uh, uh, dominant uh, uh, method of communication on, on radio. Same with uh, early television. Um, now, this is, this is the norm. I prefer it because I'm sitting here in the relative comfort of my living room, uh, and it is relative, uh, and uh, you're sitting presumably in a comparable location, although for all I know, the studio behind you is a green screen projection, and yeah. so be it. I determined from the beginning of the episode if I'm even real or not. We haven't determined yeah, that. yeah, that's why we've come full circle because... Uh, Sheboygan. <laughs> That's what one of my ex-wives used to say when we'd go through the drive-through at McDonald's. He said, "Welcome to McDonald's. What is your order, please?" And she'd say, "Sheboygan," uh, because it it caused consternation on the part of them. Poor minimum wage worker inside. Is that with fries or without fries? Yeah. The boy again.
<laughs> Sheboygan. It's a it's a town somewhere, Michigan, I think. I want to say, yeah, uh, Sheboygan. Uh, this is Wisconsin, Wisconsin. Okay, thank you, sir. We're gonna we're gonna take your word for it. I'm not even gonna triple check that. Carrington event, 1959, September 1st and 2nd. Of well, 19- hopefully 1859. It was 1959. We are in deep shit. <laughs> I was looking at that. Well, it was 1859, the first and second of September, 1859. Dr. Alan Greenfield, dude, you're amazing. We had such a good time with this. We're absolutely going to invite you back again. Listening audience, all the ways to find him located in the show notes. If you did not catch the video version of this, highly recommend you do. He's a delight. We're... Uh, old friends here so thank you sir i really appreciate it we'll absolutely have you back my pleasure and of course i am a recorded device sort of like you know a hologram just kidding maybe